0: We'll be glad to help you. If you haven't picked up on it already, I think we've been invaded by the Roar VBS. VBS starts tonight, six thirty tonight, every night, this week, and we would love to have you come help. If you haven't already signed up to help, and you'd like to to be part of that. There's one criteria. If you want to come help, you have to be breathing. That's a joke. So, thank you. All right. So, if you'd like to help tonight, I know Rhiannon and all of her crew would love to have your help. So, whether it's tonight or uh, another night this week, But that is starting tonight. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As we continue our study in the book of Acts and and looking at the, the coming of the kingdom of God and that we are in the last days and the great commission that Jesus gave to us go into all the world and all the nations and all... Every group of people, as we learned this morning in my class, every ethnic group, Jesus died for the world, for God so loved the world. And so his commission to us the last thing he said before he left the planet was, You, my church, you go, literally, as you go. You take the message of me, you make disciples of me, learner, followers of me, and I will be with you always. And that was 2,000 plus years ago, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but. What did he told them in the Upper Room Discourse? I'm going to send you the Comforter. I'm going to send you another Helper, like me. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, who will be in you and with you. I've been with you. He's also going to be in you, and you will be empowered to go. So I want you to go. That's the marching orders of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, on our lives as the church, as individual. Believers and corporately as his body. We will let the world know who he is, what he accomplished, what he's done. And so that's what we've been looking at. That Jesus says to us, Go. And as you go, you make learner followers of me. That was his commission to his church as he left the planet, and that has not changed. That's still the call on our lives today. It is the reason we exist. It is our purpose for being. And there are a lot of other things that we do. We, we're husbands, we're wives, we're parents, we're, we're friends, we are employees, we're employers and we do, we do all kinds of things as we go things as we go through life. but the call in our lives, as Paul told the church at Corinth is we are ambassadors for Christ. We offer the ministry of the word of reconciliation that we have experienced grace. we've experienced the freedom of we celebrate freedom of our country this week in the Fourth of July and, and how good God has been to the United States of America that we live here. And yet, the primary thing we need to understand as Christians, as children of God, is that we've been set free in Christ. As Jesus said, if the Son set you free, you are free. Indeed, you have been set free. And so we understand grace. We understand what it means to be righteous in Christ. We understand what it means. As he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. All of those things we've experienced as Christians, we understand. We don't live it perfectly because we're not perfect. But What we do is live out the righteousness in us. Christ in me is the hope of glory. So we've been walking through the book of Acts, understanding our marching orders, understanding that Acts is a book of history. It's the history of that early church. And how God, with his hand upon it, turned the world upside down. He changed it. He took to them a message that would set them free. Pagan after pagan after pagan. And the Jews had to come to understand that the church is not a Jewish thing. Yes, Jesus is our Messiah, but he's also their Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And And Paul writes so much about it being one body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, not all the many, many washings, and not all the things that we as Jews have experienced and, and lived under. It's a new covenant, not an old one. All of those things historically and flowing together as understanding how special the church is. That we are the called out ones, the ecclesia, we are his body, we are the ones that he has said, You are my bride. We are the ones that he has empowered by the Holy Spirit to go. So when you get to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and we're going to be in the next couple of weeks, this is absolutely one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I love the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17. And there are many, many. I love the entire book of Philippians. It's so encouraging. And, and many passages. I just love to read and meditate on Scripture. But I love to study and read and be reminded by this historical moment what God did at Athens through the Apostle Paul. Because many in our nation and even in evangelical circles and around the globe now, we have a mentality of pluralism that simply says that all religions are are basically the same. Everybody has a concept of God and you just go and you and you run with it. Now we respect people's right to believe whatever they choose to believe. But it ultimately comes down to the great truth. What is truth? What did Jesus say about truth? Many, many things. But the primary thing that he said was, I am the truth. From the burning bush, he told Moses, My name is I am. To the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, God the Son, who came into the world and said, I alone am the way to the Father. I alone am God. What you're going to see in Acts chapter 17 is how you witness to people who are seekers in some cases, maybe religious, maybe, quote, very religious, have polytheistic culture, many gods, how we can share with them who Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Christ is, that he is the savior of the world, everybody, that their God concept is the one true God trying to draw them unto himself so they could come to know God to come to know Jesus Christ and be set free. That's why it's so important we understand as Christians. We've been set free. We've experienced grace. And now we need to lovingly, compassionately, and by showing grace to others, share that truth with them. Even those who adamantly disagree with us, who would persecute us, who want nothing to do with us, would consider us arrogant, that we lovingly listen to where they are. We're going to see here that Paul meets the Athenians where they are in many ways. That's why I love this passage of Scripture. He's meeting them where they are, listening to where they are, and sharing with them where they can be. And how they can be set free, both now and forever. I don't know if you remember in your life, and if you grew up in a Christian home, you may not remember it. But I did not grow up in a Christian home, and I vividly remember the day a guy sat down with me at a church that I was visiting in a little room in the little wooden church chairs that everybody used to have as a 16-year-old kid who'd been in church my whole life. And he explained to me the gospel, and for the first time, I understood that's why Jesus came. That's what it's all about. That's what life means. That he came to give me life, both now and forever. He came that I might have life abundantly. Man, I couldn't wait to turn my life over to Christ. I couldn't wait to be set free from the burden and the guilt and the fear of God. I was terrified of God. I thought, if I do something wrong, he's going to zap me any moment. He's going to get me. In reality, what God was saying to me all along is, I'm here. I'm near to you. We're going to see this in Acts 17. 17. And he's saying to everybody, I'm here, I'm near, I want you to be, come to me. I love you. I, I want to show you unmerited favor. You can't buy your way into my good graces. I have a gift for you. It's called life, eternal life, redemption, righteousness. I want to give it to you. I've done the work. I want you to love me, trust me, and be set free. Man, what a message we have to share with people. We need to understand there will be disagreement. There will be people who will mock. There will be those who want nothing to do with what you have to say. That's okay. You love them anyway. How many of you have family members? There's somebody here who doesn't have a family. I'd like to meet that person. If you have family members, how many of you get along 100% of the time with every single person in your family? Would you raise your hand? Oh, interesting. How many of you never get along with someone even? Life is hard. These are people that you love, that you're with all the time, that you, 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 you share DNA, you, you share ancestry, people that you are blood-related to. Sometimes you just don't want to be in their presence. You want to be outside shooting basketball in the driveway. You just want to be doing something else. Because if, if, if Mary told me this weekend, if you tell that stupid joke one more time, I am going to kill you. And I said, okay, I'll tell it, but I'll tell it in a different way. She goes, no, don't ever. And it's like my arthritic right finger. She said, quit. Don't ever point with that right finger again from the pulpit. Which I'm currently doing, because when I'm pointing right, I'm actually pointing over here. But I'm pointing here, and I'm over here. So now I got one of my left fingers has now reached the same episode. So if I'm pointing, I can't point straight anymore. The tough deal when you can't point straight. I can use my middle finger, but then I'd be in trouble, right? He pointed at me with his middle finger. Oh my God! I have spent so much time at Acts and I've, and I've taught Acts 17 many, many times. Let me lay my heart out for you, and then we're going to get into this and begin to walk through it. I think about Paul being at Athens. Here's the context. He's at Athens. He's all alone. What does he do? He goes and finds some people to talk to. That's one of my faults. I'm told I love people too much. I'm in an elevator yesterday at Baptist Hospital. They had one elevator working. You ever been to Baptist Hospital when there's only one elevator working? I wanted to go see, see Sweet Fern. She was on the fifth floor. And I said, okay, I'll take the stairs down. But I'm not sure I'm taking ten flights of stairs up. I might not make it. They might find I have to find a room for me. So there's like 15 of us piled in this one elevator. Who's the only person talking? Why? I love people. Now, sometimes they don't want to be talked to, and I understand that. And so, I, that you know, you got to back off. And then sometimes they just need to hear what you got to say because it's funny. Now, not everybody's as funny as I am. I realize that. But sometimes i got something to say that's really funny. They might not find it amusing, but who does? That's all that really matters to me. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> And one of these days when I'm in a nursing home, it, my goal is going to be I'm going to make everybody laugh because I'm laughing. Now, I might not even know what's going on, but I'm going to be laughing at something. I love to laugh. But here's why I love people so much. Because I know the one entity in the universe that can bring them happiness. My father. Here's my goal for you as we walk through Acts 17. There's several things we're going to learn. But if nothing else, learn this. Fall in love with your father. Don't just say, well, I'm glad he sent Jesus to die for me, and I'm glad God loves me. Fall in love with him. If you're in love with somebody, you love for other people to know that person. How many of you have your grandparents? Okay, after, after church today, if you're a grandparent, we're just going to give you the microphone and let you talk about your grandkids. How many of you are going to do that if you're a grandparent? <laughs> Even the ones are terrified, like my wife, are terrified. She'll talk about her grandkids. Why? Because they're so special to you. You love them. you hurt for them. You look at our world or you look down the road and you think, what's going on? What's it going to be? And you love them. You care about them. Fall in love with your father and then just you'll find yourself wanting to tell people about your dad. I know my three children, that's all they want to talk about is how much how cool their dad is. Okay, maybe not. You want people to know that God, your father, is not who they think God is. We started out today saying, everybody has a concept of God. You've heard me say this a million times. Everybody has a philosophy of life. Everybody has a belief system. But please hear this before we get into this. Our job as Christians is to respect their beliefs. Okay? Their right to believe it. Respect it. Honor it. Honor them as human beings created in the image of God. It does not mean what they believe is the truth. Because not all, all beliefs can be true. They're mutually exclusive. If you believe in a God and you don't believe in a God, are they both true? Of course not. There is either, either is a God or there isn't. And so what we want to do is find out what's the evidence that there is a God. You're going to see that in Acts 17. What's the evidence that that God is Jesus Christ? It's a magnificent way for us to explain who the God is we serve. In Exodus chapter 20, and I want you to turn there. In Exodus chapter 20, after God has delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, and he's giving them their law to proceed forward as they go toward the promised land, and he's giving them, quote, the Ten Commandments, he says this. The first thing he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have what? No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. End quote. On the very front end, God is saying, "I've called you out. I'm gonna. I've set you free from bondage. I'm taking you to the promised land. And in between, you will not serve other gods. I alone am God. My name is I." am, And by extension, all those other gods are what? Not. I'm God. There is no other. He proved it to Pharaoh. He proved it to king after king after king. And ultimately, he proved it to the Roman Empire. He's proving it still. I am God. There is no other. Now, you're my people. I've called you out. I set you free. I'm I'm taking you to the promised land. And in between, you are to serve me and no other God. That is a picture of our salvation in Christ. When you're born again, you're set free from the bondage of sin, justification. When you die and go home, you go to the promised land, heaven. In between, in the process of from getting to bond, set free from bondage to going home, you live. The process of sanctification, and God says during that process, it will be hard, it will be difficult, it will be tough, but you are to serve me. Not yourself as a a God. Not your money as a God. Not prestige as a God. Not another person as a God. Not another philosophical system or belief system. You are to serve me and by extension, show to the world how many gods are there. One. You show the world who your father is. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You will have no other God. Now, when we get to Athens, how many gods did they have in Athens? You're know, read Greek mythology? In the city of Athens alone, it's estimated at this point in time when Paul was there in Acts chapter 17 that there were 30,000 public idols. 30,000. They created a God for everything. You've heard me talk about this before. Greek and Roman mythology, and I loved it when I was a kid, but before I was a Christian, I, I read every single thing I could read on two things. Greek mythology, mythology, Greek and Roman, and Sherlock Holmes. I just couldn't get enough of it. I love that stuff. And I read it. I was fascinated by it. So as you get to Athens, turn to get out of Acts chapter 17. Here's what you're going to see about Paul. It's that he loves these pagans. He cares about them. Look at Acts 17, verse 15. So those who conducted Paul and brought him to Athens... Marcus shared with you a couple of weeks ago at Berea, Thessalonica, Thessalonica. he's had to flee. He's now at Athens. Receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. He is at Athens alone. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him. Literally, he's here passing through. He's fled That's when and Berea. He's headed to Corinth, which has now become the cultural center of Greece. He's headed there. He stops over in Athens. Here's what I want you to understand. He loves people, Jew or Gentile. He loves them. He cares about them. Charles Spurgeon in 1855 stood up before his congregation and he said the following words. 1855. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's children is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls God. Father. That's the Apostle Paul. He loved his God. He'd been set free by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd had the calling on his life to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he took it very seriously. So if he finds himself alone, it at happens. And here's a side principle. This one doesn't cost you any more, but it's incredibly important. He was at Athens. Nobody else on his missionary team was with him. He didn't have any of the sound boys. He didn't have any of the worship band. He didn't have everybody set up. It was just him. He didn't have Silas. He didn't have Timothy. He didn't have Luke. He's at Athens all by himself. You know what his mindset is? I am not alone. I got God. Me and God, we're going to go see what's going on in Athens. His mindset was, wherever I am, God has placed me here. God was here before me. God will be here after me. God is here with me. I am going to share. I want people to know my father. I can't wait to tell them. So notice on your handout. Here he is at Athens alone. And it says he meets the Athenians where they are. Number one, physically, look at verse 16 again. He's at Athens. His spirits revolt within him. He sees that the city is given over idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with the Gentile worshipers, in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, while he's in there talking to people, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Athens at this point in time, was in a period of decline. Carthage said to become the number one political and commercial center in the area. Athens was about 400 years past its golden age, but still it was the university center of the world. It was the number one center for religion and philosophy. Athens was the city of Pericles, Demosthenes, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, Zeno and Epicurus. The last two he will encounter their followers. This trip. To this day, as we sit here in 2019, almost every philosophy in the entire world is based somewhat, if not completely, on the teachings of the men I just named, these Greek philosophers, in some degree. Paul, being a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek speaking Jew, he was very familiar with his culture, their art, their philosophy, all that they worshipped. So, verse 16, he's waiting at Athens. And he just goes out walking around. Here's what he sees. He's not here. This is not necessarily part of his missionary journey. The team is not with him. As I said, he's waiting for them to come. They're going to go to Corinth. He just goes out. And he sees that the city was full of idols. Petronius, who was a pagan writer of the day, said this, quote, It was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. They had so many and all the great temples on the Acropolis, the Parthenon. Quote, Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes and powers of nature, ministered to art, amusement, and it was entirely destitute of moral power. Connie Beer and Hausen wrote that in their book about Greek, about Athens. Warren Risby in his commentary on this passage says, quote, Gods and goddesses that in their own rivalries and ambitions they acted more like humans than gods. Now, notice verse 16. So Paul just goes out and notice what he sees. The city's given over to idols, and it says his spirit was provoked within him. The word provoked, interesting word. It means to sharpen a blade, or it means to be sharpened by a blade. But the idea here in the context and by extension was he was exasperated, he was irritated. It's a violent eruption of emotion within him. There was a storm going on inside him when he saw all these idols. It's righteous anger, not at the people, but at this satanic grip that was on this city idol after idol after idol. Now this was the, in their mind that they were a unique culture. They were smarter than everybody else. They were the most well-educated, the largest university in the world was here. They, they, they looked at themselves as unique, superior to every other race. And they had this concept of God, but their concept was God, we will, we will create a God and bow down to that God to get him on our side just in case we need him, they have God for everything. So each of these idols represents to Paul that you know, whichever group is following that specific idol is looking for something. What, what did Paul want to say to them? I found what you're looking for. You've got a concept of God, and you're seeking. What does that mean? Let me explain that to you as we're going to see. That's the crux of this passage. They had a capacity for truth. They had a thirst for truth. For the one true God. They hadn't found him, but they were seeking him. In verse 22, he says, I see that you are very religious. They were seeking. But also to Paul, each of those idols represented a twisted, distorted, misguided, result that they'd reached in their search let's make it applicable to us today so many people say I believe in God but in reality what I believe in is me if I am my God I'm in big big trouble aren't I because I'm going to mess up I'm going to ruin it I'm not going to be able to come through at critical moments just this week, it's been on all of our hearts, what's going on in California with these earthquakes. Suddenly, you're in a, I saw a video of, this of people they were actually on television broadcasting. And suddenly, the whole studio they're in starts just shaking. And they're worried that the, the big lights above them are going to fall on their head. And literally, the, there was a female anchor and a male anchor. And you know what the female anchor said? She said, I don't know about you, but I'm getting under the desk. This was on the air. You know what? I don't blame her. The building looks like it's falling apart. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I was one time, and I was actually mopping a floor. And suddenly the whole floor was moving. And I thought, I don't believe this is correct. I don't think it's supposed to do that. I know this is some good stuff, but I don't believe this mop water is supposed to do that. And the whole building was moving. It was weird. Suddenly, your life changes. Remember 9-11? Suddenly, we're all desperately in need of whom? God. Because we can't fix that. We'll deal with it. We have dealt with it. And we'll continue to deal with it. But it's suddenly you're just faced with. I had someone call me this weekend. And an old old friend of mine, one of the first people I met when I came to the church, and was very helpful to me in a lot of things, it's found out that his daughter has pancreatic cancer. Suddenly your life changes, doesn't it? Suddenly things are different. Suddenly you realize, I can't fix that. My philosophy of life is not going to carry me beyond the grave. Is there anything beyond the grave? I don't know. See, Christians know. We know whom we have believed, we know he's capable. He is the omnipotent God who spoke the universe into existence. That's your dad. Paul is proof because he knows this God. He wants them to know that God. They're searching for something. Think about all those people that were on that elevator with me yesterday. It was hot. Everybody wanted, wanted me to shut up. But deep within their beings... God has created in each of them, just like he did something beyond me, greater than me, that I need. A God consciousness. I can fill it with me, but ultimately, I've got to answer the great questions of life. Where did I come from? What in the world am I doing here? Purpose. Meaning. Destiny. Only Christianity offers Valid answers to those three great and meaning, purpose. We need to love people. Find out where they are. And then share the truth of the gospel. Tell what you've experienced. So what does Paul do? Verse 17. What's the first word? 17. What? Good translation. It's therefore. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace there. And then he's going to meet philosophers. They're going to take you to a place called the Areopagus or on Mars Hill. So he meets these people first time on this, but it's so important in your heart that you see this. What's, if your Bible doesn't say this, the first word in verse 17 in the original language is therefore. What? What is therefore? Why is this therefore, therefore? Because Paul who loves God with all his being, going into a trap of following a satanic deception, and it's killing him. He wants to tell them about the known God, the one true God. He goes where they are. First of all, he goes to the synagogue. This is his pattern everywhere he goes. He goes to the synagogue because he's going to God. They're following Judaism. Now, they're opposed to the polytheism of the city of Athens. But they're focused on the religious Judaism, the self-right. Group number one. Group number two, he goes to the marketplace. He just goes where people are. He goes and hangs out. Whether it's at the mall or it's at Crowbar, notice in verse 17, he went there daily. Remember, he's just in Athens waiting for the boys to show up so they can continue their ministry work. What's he doing? He is. So he goes to the marketplace every day with the tradesmen and the people that are there who are the victims of this society of idolatry. This is where you get they're simply living to survive the day to make money and to carry on. You know anybody like that? They're simply living. How much money does it take to make a rich man happy? Just a little bit more. They're living for the prophet overwhelmed by satanic, satanic idolatry. So while he's in the marketplace, he meets these two philosophers. Verse 18. Two. Now, quickly, who were Epicureans? Again, followers of this Epicurus, we mentioned him earlier. Epicureans are basically atheists, or best, they, was, they simply lived for pleasure. All that mattered to them was what makes me happy right now. That's the opposite. You don't want anything to do with it, you just enjoy life. The Stoics, the other group, they kind of like, enjoy life, it's a big party, and then you die. The Stoics, on the other hand, said you don't enjoy life. You're not allowed to do that. You just endure life. You just get by. They were pantheists. Very simply, here's what a pantheist is. A pantheist believes that God is everything, and everything is God. That chair is God. This podium is God. The tile floor is God. The sky is God. You're God. Pantheist, God is everything, and everything is God. That's who the Stoics were. They rejected worship of any kind, pagan, whatever it might be. They were very much into personal discipline, self-control. Pain and pleasure were neither good nor bad. You just endured. It was all about you being able to handle everything. You were totally self-sufficient on your own. The philosopher they followed was a guy named Zeno. I mentioned him earlier. They did not allow emotion to be part of their lives. They, you were to control your emotions and never show them. They felt like the, the highest virtue a man could have was simply to be apathetic and just endure it. Just grin grin and bear it. Now, what's their reaction to Paul? Number one, verse 18, they call him a babbler. Probably the Epicureans called him this. And a babbler, it's a great picture in Greek. The word "babbler" means a seed picker, and it's a picture of like a bird. You ever thought like if you're at the zoo or someplace, or even like in my backyard, if you if you throw something out like food, what do you see? Bird, they peck it here and they peck it here. And then like you know, if you're driving down the road, you see a uh, road, you see those giant turkey vultures. That's some ugly birds. But if there's some roadkill laying on that on that road, they're not going to move till you get just about here. You're going to smack them with your car. I've tried. And then finally, they'll they'll get out of the way. (laughs) And then once you're gone, what do they do? They come back and start picking again. They call Paul a seed picker, like a little bird. You collect a fragment here, you collect a fragment there, this philosophy, that philosophy, and then you bring it all together into your nest. That's what the Epicureans say about Paul. The Stoics, in verse 18, say, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. In other words, he's like the rest of the Athenians and the Greeks around us. Notice the reason why, verse 18. Because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. The word resurrection in Greek here is anastasis, anastasis, which was a god to them. So here's what they're saying. This Paul guy just seems to be like... Everybody else in Athens, he's got a couple of gods he wants to talk about. One's Jesus, and the other is Anastasis. So why not listen to him too? We listen to everybody else. So that's what happens. Verse 19. They took Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus. It's old Mars Hill. You'll see the Mars Hill is the location. Areopagus is there. It's like a court. Talk about it more in a moment. They brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Or Jesus and the resurrection Areopagus was simply like a court of uh, when it became to religion and philosophy this was the court that made all the decisions it had been originally on Mars Hill and it, it, it probably at this point was even in the marketplaces where it was meeting it was the final court in these areas of religion philosophy education when it came to those things they were the ones who had the final decision so they asked Paul verse 19 Would you explain to us this new doctrine you're preaching? Verse 20. You're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For the Athenians and the foreigners who were there at the Areopagus or in the Mars Hill, the whole area, they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. In other words, we're curious about your philosophy because what they did was sit around and talk philosophy. So they want to hear, this is not an antagonistic thing like it, it, we've seen in other places and we'll see in other places going forward and I, they're just, at this point, they're just curious what this babbler has to say. I want you to stop for a moment and mentally get this picture. Paul is alone at Athens. He's simply gone out where people are and he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection and then the boy's the Epicureans and the Stoics say, hey, why don't you come up to the Areopagus with us? We'll all sit around and discuss this. Now, you're the Apostle Paul, knowing him as we do. What's going through his mind at this point? All right. I can't wait. What an opportunity. I get to sit before the Areopagus and tell them about Jesus. I can't wait. I want them to know. We've talked about it, emphasized it, overemphasized it today. This is, this is what he wants. He didn't go out to seek this, but he's so excited. I get a chance to tell them about the real God, the known God, the God that they're seeking that they don't even know they're missing. I get to tell them. he looks at it as a great opportunity to defend the case for Christ. This is a big moment in the, New Test- in the history of the New Testament. Verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, objects plural, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, there's that great word again, the one, the unknown God, whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. The sovereign hand of God has brought him where? Exactly where he needs to be and exactly where they need to be so they can hear about the unknown God. He meets them where they are. And notice Verse 22 again. He meets them where they are spiritually. This is so important in sharing your faith. And the reason I know this is important is I've done it the wrong way. When I was saved as a a young teenager, my way of witnessing to people was that you do know you're going to hell, right? Now, my father did not take that well. And when I woke up, I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to come across that way. Um, Here's the point. Verse 22. Notice. He says, while I'm walking around, seeing all the objects of your worship, clearly you are religious people. He meant that as a compliment. Not a put down. A compliment. I admire your intellect. That you're seeking truth. But I noticed you had an altar... To the unknown God. It's really interesting. What I'd like to do today, if you'll let me, is let me tell you about that unknown God. The origin of this is really cool. Several hundred years ago, they'd had a plague in Athens. And they couldn't figure out what was causing it. So they sent for a guy named Euripides from Crete they figured they had angered one of their gods Greek mythology so he sent for Euripides they bring him in he says no it's not one of our local gods this is an out of town god that's literally what happened and he said we don't know it's not one of our regular boys so here's what he did they brought in a special group of, of goats for sheep and they didn't feed them for a while so they got, if you don't feed an animal, what happens to them? Ultimately, they'll die. But if you don't feed them and they're alive, what are they? Kind of like having a child. If you don't feed them, they're going to, they're going to get real hungry. So these animals were hungry. So they let them loose. They said, now, anytime one of them stops and lays down, we're going to build an altar to the unknown God right there. They're hungry. They'll, they'll just go eat. Well, there were a few of them that actually didn't run out in like, different places. They stopped, laid down. So they built an altar every place one of those sheep laid down to the unknown God. There were many of them. Well, over the years, most of them had deteriorated, fallen apart. They no longer existed. But they kept one as a, as a memorial. Please see this because it's where people are. They kept an altar to the unknown God because what? This is what apologetics is, defending your faith. Because they, may, they thought within their being there might be something out there. We don't know how to put it. They kept themselves a generic God. Just in case, to this one. That's the unknown God. But what does Paul say? That is. Altered with an inscription. The unknown. That there might be a God out there you don't understand. Now verse 23. Worship without knowing Him I proclaim to you. I want you to experience this God. God is. Just a couple of things I want you to notice. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, the Bible says, "Hearts of men. God has said eternity in the. Heart. So as we close today, I want you to think about it this way. When God created the universe, and I was reading some articles this week about how much they now keep finding, God speaks that into existence. Everything that is. He's the only self-existent, non-created entity in the universe. It's God. He created... What's the last thing he made? It's the last thing God created? What's the only thing he created in his image? Man. What's the only thing that has an intellect? What's the only thing that can emote? What's the only thing that can know God? The only thing in the universe that can know God? On an intimate level, where you call him Father, it's your next door neighbor, it's that family member that's driving you crazy, it's the people you work with, people you encounter, within them is a consciousness that there's something bigger than me, eternity, there is a God. I don't understand it. Maybe I don't believe in a God. Something's out there. You know where we're going to see that Paul starts to explain the known God? You know where he starts? Creation. It's been called the ultimate apologetic. Once you understand something made this, somebody made this, then you begin to think, well, who is that somebody? You know who it is? It's your dad. It's your dad. Fall in love with him. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, we thank you that you are our Father, that we, prayer is not an exercise in futility, and what we do is not just us being religious so we can get by because we need a crutch. You are the God who has proven himself to be there. As Francis Schaefer said, you are there. I pray, Lord, we could get a grip on how desperately our neighbors and co workers and family members need, even strangers need that God. We know you. We want them to know you. Motivate us, Father. Move us. Move us to share Jesus Christ with people because he changes lives. For all of us here today that are Christians, Father, that's what our prayer. You'd motivate us to share Jesus. And Lord, if there's somebody here who's just never said yes to Jesus, they would realize at this moment, he is God. He died in my place. And just simply say to Jesus, forgive me. Save me. I want to be set free. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.